Good morning, community of faith. Start over. Had to just warm up a little bit. Uh, hey, welcome. It's good to see you all in the room. I'm so thankful that we get to connect even online. And I, here's what I want to do. I know I do this a lot, but I just think it's important. Let's give a shout out to all of our friends watching online that aren't here because for a lot of different reasons, but we know that they're, uh, they're here, just not in the room with us. And uh, I'm just glad that we get to still uh, be a part of the same community of faith, the same family. And uh, listen, calm down. It's orange. It's not red. Okay, you're like, it's October, Wes has got a red balloon on the stage, what's going on? It's orange, I picked orange on purpose, but some of you are like, man, that's, that's red. And I, I'll, honestly, it does look a little red, but don't worry, uh, there's no clowns running around this room at least, I can say that with a lot of confidence. We're diving into week seven of Stronger, and to set this up, I want to uh, point you to something, I don't know if you remember, just a few years ago, I think it was two summers ago, uh, there was an app on smartphones called the Face app. And what it, you would do with that is you would take a picture of yourself or even more fun, take a picture of somebody else and put that into the face app and then it would transform that person's face to a future version of themselves, like decades down the road. And so it would make you look older and so you can kind of get a little glimpse of maybe what was to come and that could be good, it could be bad. And so uh, to have some fun with that today, I wanted to uh, do that with some of our staff, okay? So this will be fun. Are you ready for this? Paul Adams, uh, some of you know Paul, others of you maybe don't know Paul, maybe recognize him from the early show. Paul is our next-gen pastor at Community Faith, incredible guy uh, from Michigan, so he talks a little bit different, he doesn't talk Texan like some of us, uh, great guy, good-looking guy, put him on the Face app, and we got <laughs> Paul Adams, I, but I gotta say, I mean, I gotta be honest, he's still, that's pretty sharp-looking older Paul Adams, all right, so uh, let's go to the next one, Cherie, Cherie Howard, some of you know Cherie. You recognize her from the early show. You maybe have seen her on the screens or watching online, watching the early show. You saw her today actually helping uh, sing and lead you all in worship through singing. And uh, a lot of you didn't know she could, could sing, but she has an incredible voice. So we threw Cherie into the face app, and there we go. Not too bad. Um, hopefully I have friends after this. Hopefully we're all still good and um, still get along. But uh, then we went with David Rudd. Some of you know David Rudd. David was right back here. Um, he's had a haircut since this picture, uh, but David is a super talented guy. He coordinates a lot of the music here and musicians and crazy talented. Been able to work with David for a really long time. Put David into the face app, and there we go. And I just got to say, I, I would not be disappointed if I had that look when I was older. I just feel like that's a cool look, and um, yeah, I can't grow hair like that, though, and I can't even grow a beard like that. My, like, I look, I look gross when I try to grow any kind of a beard, because it's not really a beard. It's just kind of looks like dirt on my face. It's weird. All right, next one. I don't know if you know these two. Mark and Laura Shook, our founding pastors, uh, decided that we would throw them into the face app so they could get a glimpse of their future as well as we could see a glimpse of their future. And here we go. I want to know what the secret is because it seems like Mark and Laura never age. Uh, somebody actually asked me that in the lobby after the last service. They're like, hey, you gotta find out Mark and Laura's secret to the no aging syndrome. So uh, there's Mark and Laura. And then of course we threw a picture of me in there and uh, just see what the face app had to do, what kind of transformation, and this is what we got. <laughs> I don't know how that happened. Sun's out, gun's out, I don't know, man. That's, you know, here's the reality of what we just saw. Some of us have a brighter future than others. All right? For some of us, when we look at our future, 
Uh, we get a little bit excited. There's some peace. There's some calm to that. There's some excitement about maybe the days ahead because we have a little bit of a glimpse of what the future looks like. For others of us, maybe to think about the future and some things we may know about our future, it leaves us in a place of stress or anxiety, maybe feeling discouraged. And I want to talk about that today. I want to talk about this idea of hope and how we find real hope as we continue in this series called Stronger, a life built to last. I think as we gain a greater understanding of the hope that we can learn about through scripture, then we can in fact be stronger today and tomorrow and for the rest of our days on this planet. And so we're going to continue in Daniel chapter 7. We've been going through the book of Daniel. I hope you've enjoyed the series. I, I know that I have. Well, today we kind of come to an interesting place. And Mark and I were talking a few weeks ago, and uh, honestly, we, we had considered maybe stopping the series after week six and starting something new in October. And we started processing through it and just decided, let's dive into the crazy parts of the book of Daniel. Because it gets a little crazy, and if you've read ahead, you know that. Daniel 7, it shifts a little bit. We've been reading and learning and studying uh, about these four guys, these Hebrew guys that were ripped from their homeland as young teenagers and brought to the Babylonian Empire, the Babylonian Kingdom. They're beginning to learn Babylonian ways, and we've been learning all their stories and hearing miracles of, of what took place in their lives. But today it shifts, and it goes more from a narrative of these four guys and some of the other Hebrew uh, people to this apocalyptic vibe, an apocalyptic theme. I mean, we start learning about these beasts, and it gets a little bit scary, kind of spooky. Maybe that's relevant for October. Uh, it's not quite on the clown level, but it takes this, this weird turn. And what's interesting in the book of Daniel, if you go back and study and begin to learn what some of the scholars have discovered, is that the early parts of Daniel, chapters 1 through 6, were actually written originally by Daniel in Aramaic, which was the language of the Babylonian culture. Most of what we read moving forward in 7 through 12 is written in Hebrew, specifically to God's people. Now, there's still Aramaic fragments sprinkled in, but Daniel began to write this portion in his native language, in Hebrew. And it's interesting for us, and I think it's going to help us understand this idea of hope. And so as we dive into chapter 7 today, I think we see three things that I want us to unpack together. The first thing is we're going to look at the credibility of Daniel. Like, how do we know this is all true? What kind of knowledge and facts and information can I attach to what I've been listening to to give me more confidence, to have some credibility in Daniel's life? The second thing I want us to see is the consistency of history, the consistency of history for our world, and then land at a place of confidence in eternal hope. And so as we understand that, begin to unpack that, let's dive in to chapter 7. Now what you need to know is that this story picks up 20 years prior to where we've been the last couple of weeks. The last couple of weeks, Mark and I have talked about some different stories where Daniel was in his 80s. Well, this story was written about 20 years before that. Daniel sees this vision. He has this dream. So Daniel's somewhere in his 60s. So we pick up in verse 1. It says this. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Now, we recognize that name. If you've been around for this series at all, a couple weeks ago we talked about this guy, Belshazzar. If you aren't here, you can go back and, and read that. You can go back and listen to that on YouTube. But this is an interesting thing we're going to come back to in just a second. But notice we start to see these details. Daniel's having this vision. He's having this dream. He's asleep. It says, then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. And then notice what he says. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. I think it's really easy to just glance past that. 
But when I read this, what I, what I am envisioning is happening is the four winds. There's wind comes from different directions. We have four cardinal directions. We have north, south, east, and west. So it's almost like in this moment, Daniel is seeing this storm where the wind is coming out of the north, the south, the east, and the west. I can't help but think there's some kind of cyclone or hurricane in the middle of this great sea. There's four seas talked about in the Bible. There's the Red Sea. There's the Dead Sea. There's the Sea of Galilee where Jesus did a lot of his ministry in close proximity to there. And then there's the Great Sea, which scholars and uh, theologians believe is the Mediterranean Sea. It's a large body of water. What's also interesting about this is that Daniel is far away from the Great Sea. But where he was born and where his origins lie are in Jerusalem, which is right on the edge of the Great Sea. So he's having this vision of his homeland. And God wants to show him something. So he begins to see this bizarre image that says, And four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. This is crazy. I mean, this is getting a little bit uh, sci-fi. This is getting a little bit uh, whatever old kingdoms show where they all go to war and there's dragons. And this is crazy scene, but I think it's important for us to understand something. Before we move on, kind of in the middle of this Daniel series, is I want us to look at the credibility of Daniel. That Daniel's prophecy points to eternal hope. We started talking about hope this morning. We've got to understand Daniel's credibility. There's some information I think we need to know. Did you know that 25% of your Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, is prophecy? 25%. What's interesting is in all of that prophecy, for every time you read something prophetic about the first arrival of Jesus in Bethlehem to, to arrive on this planet the very first time, for every one time you read about his first arrival, you can read eight different things about his second arrival on this planet. It's all prophecy. It's all promises of things that God says are going to come true. Now, I know that this world has a lot of skeptics, a lot of critics. I consider myself a skeptic. I'm a pretty skeptical person. I got trust issues. It's why my microphone was turned off earlier, because I'm afraid there's going to be a day where I'm going to leave it on, and they're going to forget to mute me back there, and I'm going to ruin the moment for all of you singing out loud when my microphone's on. If I sit down at a table and we're playing a card game and I get up and leave and go to the bathroom and leave my cards laying on the table, I'm going to sit back down assuming you've looked at my cards because I don't trust you, I'm skeptical. Also, because if you get up and go to the bathroom and leave your cards there, I'm going to look at your cards. So that's, that's, why, that's how this works for me. I'm skeptical and a lot of people are skeptical. A lot of people are specifically skeptic of some of the things that happen in the book of Daniel. And they ask questions like, how is this even possible? I think it's important for us to understand why. It's, under, it's important for us to understand some of the, the what and the how of the book of Daniel, of, of how some things specifically took place, the when, the why, the geography. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 says this, Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. You see, this hope, this idea of hope, it's so much more than a feeling. There's some foundation to it. There's some understanding that goes along with it. And it says, be ready to communicate that. You see, here's my fear. Here's what, I, here's what I'm afraid is going on in our culture today. I heard another guy talk about this uh, last year and I've talked to some others about it. But he basically said culture is going through a, a shift. And he described our culture, specifically in the United States, in four ways. He said, you've got four groups of people. You've got your fully committed followers of Jesus I mean, they are in church, they are praying personally, they are reading their Bible on their own. I mean, they are all in, full out for Jesus. 
And then he said, and then you have this second group that are kind of a little more casual in their faith. I mean, they know about Jesus. They, they sing about Jesus. They know some scripture verses. They go to church on a somewhat regular basis, but they're not quite fully sold out, but they would call themselves Christians. And then he said, there's a third group, and I'll call these for today the, the Christers. The, I'm going to show up at Christmas and Easter and maybe once or twice outside of that, but they would still call themselves Christians. And then he said, and then there's this fourth group, non-Christian, maybe even hostile towards the things of Jesus. And what he, what he was saying, and why I think this is important for us to understand today, is what he's saying is, he for years, these three groups, the, the committed, the casual, the creasers, they all existed and operated and thought and lived and cultivated culture the same way. The problem is, is that a lot of these two base their faith on the way that they feel. And so what's happening right now, and I think the pandemic has accelerated this, is now, instead of these two groups landing here and being led by the things of Christ and the things of the church, and notice I didn't say that these are perfect people, because we are imperfect people who serve a perfect God, but sometimes we get some things wrong. But he's saying instead of us landing here, a lot of that is shifting, and and these two groups are now landing here. And so there's a lot of panic. There's a lot of fear. People saying, oh my gosh, the church is dying. Where is God? And what I think is actually happening is what's going on is is actually exposing what the church has always been. And it's important for us to understand why we believe some of the things that we believe and not be terrified because we feel like numbers are going down or we're all alone. I think it's showing us this is who we are. But we've been still called for a purpose and for a plan in this world. And so this creates some problems. Skeptics are suspicious of the book of Daniel. Did you know in chapter 11, there are 135 prophecies, promises of things that are going to come true. All 135 of those promises have come true. Now, when I think about that, I'm like, okay, that that seems a little shady. I mean, consider it like this. Let's say I had 10 coins in my hand, and on each coin, I wrote a number, one through 10. And then I took those coins and I shook them up and I I put them in my pocket and I told you that I'm going to draw those coins, I'm going to pull those coins out of my pocket one at a time in chronological order. So I'm going to go through and I'm going to pick the first coin out and there's a one in ten chance that I'm going to pick coin number one. Okay, great. I can get on board with that. But then after I do that, there's a one one in 100 chance that I'm going to pull out number two all the way through number 10. For me to do that in chronological order, the odds are one in one billion. So if I stood here today and I told you, hey, I pulled all 10 out consecutively, you would say, no, you're shady, Wes. There's no way. That's impossible. And that's how people look at the book of Daniel. There's so many things that have happened in it that people begin to think, man, there's something's up with that. In third century AD, there was a Neoplatonic philosopher named Porphyry. And it was his goal in life to discredit and disprove the validity of the Bible. He wrote 15 books against Christianity. And his big claim when it comes to the book of Daniel is that the book of Daniel was a, a, a book of forgery, of illegitimate facts. And he actually claimed that the book of Daniel was written in 165 B.C., Well, that's a contradiction to what we've read so far in the series because Daniel was living during the 6th century B.C. 
So Porphyry decided that the book was written 350 years after all the events that we've seen in the book of Daniel. And you might think to yourself, well, I can get on board with that. I mean, is it really that big of a deal what the date is or where it landed or if it's, if it's phony or not? And the, the answer to that is yes, it's critical. Because if the credibility of the book of Daniel is shaky, then the entire New Testament is shaky. Jesus himself calls Daniel a prophet. And so if we can't believe the things that Jesus, the Messiah, says, then we can't trust anything about our faith. Paul refers to the prophecies in Daniel. The book of Revelation is tied to the prophecies in this chapter that we're reading. You know, it's interesting. It said in that first verse, it said in the first year of Belshazzar, in his first year ruling and reigning as king in Babylon, there's something important for us to know. And you might not have known this already, and I kind of geek out about this a little bit. Some of you are like, okay, Wes, this is like information overload. And then others of you are like, oh, this is good. I've been waiting for this. This, this is awesome. Here's what's interesting about Belshazzar. As you know, for centuries, historians believed that there was no such person as Bel- named Belshazzar. And so it discredited and disproved the validity of Daniel, the credibility of Daniel. Until recently, archaeologists discovered an inscription on an artifact in Iraq, which is where Babylon was. And on this inscription, they found Belshazzar's name. But what's interesting is they said that the the last, prior to this artifact being found, the last known ruler of Babylon was Nebuchadnezzar. And so everybody's like, where did this Belshazzar guy come from? And then they found this artifact and it said that Nebuchadnezzar left the kingdom and went out to the desert. And when he went out to the desert, he made his son Belshazzar king. Fun little fact, if you go back to chapter 5, when Belshazzar elevates Daniel, he doesn't elevate him as the number 2 guy. He elevates him as the number 3 guy because Belshazzar was the number 2 guy because Nebuchadnezzar was still alive. But what's interesting, if you begin to factor all of that in, you take these historical documents into play, in, into play, it begins to disprove what Porphyry begins to say. Belshazzar disappears from history. Nobody's talking about him, nobody's writing about him, but Daniel wrote about him. And then all of a sudden, archaeologists discover something that reinforces Daniel's credibility, reinforces the credibility of God's word, the Bible. A couple of other quick Interesting facts, the Septuagint, Septuagint, it's a weird word. It's the most popular version of the Hebrew Old Testament that was translated into Greek. Well, scholars believe that it was translated into Greek in 275 BC. Okay, so that's 110 years prior to Porphyry's claim. What they found is that the book of Daniel is included in the Septuagint. Therefore, it was written prior to 165. The Dead Sea Scrolls, one of the greatest archaeological finds in all of human history. Old transcripts of Scripture, they were found, and it was discovered that some of the fragments of the Dead Sea Scrolls contained parts of Daniel written in Aramaic and Hebrew. What's interesting about the fragments found from Aramaic is it's the same version of Aramaic that Daniel learned in Babylon and spoke and wrote in. This is not a coincidence. This is not just some literature that we're reading and trying to find some application for our lives. The facts are bringing credibility. Listen, if you say something will happen and it doesn't actually happen, 
you are one of two people. You're either a meteorologist or a false prophet. And so Daniel is a prophet. He is a prophet from God speaking prophecy. And we see all through Scripture God speaking through his chosen prophets and the things that he's speaking through them, they're coming to fruition. And the same is true for Daniel. And I say all of this on purpose because I think it helps lay the foundation that Daniel's credibility shapes and points to this eternal hope. If God was there in the beginning and he was making promises in the beginning and those promises have been coming true all through history, then God is also going to be there in the end and the promises that he says in the end, about the end, hold truth today. And this is the foundation for Daniel 7 through 12. It shapes our hope. And then the story gets crazy. The dream gets crazy. Look what happens in verse 4. It says, the first was like a lion. He's writing, he describes these four beasts. He says, the first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. Here's what's interesting about this. All four of these beasts that we're about to read about, they represented an earthly kingdom. And so this first one is believed to represent Babylon, the Babylonian kingdom, which Daniel was familiar with. He lived in it. He understood it. It's being described as a lion with wings on it. Now that's a bit terrifying. A lion by itself is terrifying. A lion with wings, but notice it says that the wings were plucked. It's this idea that the wings of the lion were plucked. He lost its power and it was made to stand like a man. Because the Babylonian kingdom, they believed that they were gods themselves. It's this imagery of you have no power except for human power. And it's important for us to see this. We, we begin to see this vision. Look what it says in verse 5. And behold, another beast, a second one resembling a bear. So we've got a lion with wings, and now we've got a bear. But this one is interesting. It says it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. So we've got the lion, now we've got the bear, but it's not just any bear, it's a lopsided bear. Now, what I know about a bear, I've never been chased by one, but I think I'd rather be chased by a bear than a lion because a bear is not as fast as a lion, but it's still incredibly powerful. Scholars believe everybody's landed the conclusion here is that Daniel is seeing a vision of the Medo-Persian Empire. It was a large empire. King Xerxes had formed an army of 2.5 million soldiers. That's a large, powerful force, but 2.5 million people don't move very fast. But we think this is, the, this is the image that Daniel is seeing. What's interesting is this was written before the story of Belshazzar that we read a couple weeks ago. So none of this has happened yet. How did Daniel know this? It continues on. After this, I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard. So we got lions, bears, leopards, which had on its back four wings of a bird. This is getting whack. I mean, this is just getting crazy. It said the beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. You know what's interesting about a leopard is they're incredibly fast and swift and nimble, but they can't run long distances. It's pointing us to Alexander the Great, the Macedon Greek Empire. What's interesting about Alexander the Great is he was powerful, and he was swift, and he was conquering lands and taking over places, but he died when he was 31. He didn't live a long life. When he died... He turned over the power to his four generals. Notice, four heads on this beast. He, he, he passed this empire on to his four generals, Lysimachus, Cassander, Seleucus, and Thalami, who opened up a lot of sandwich shops in his new kingdom. 
How would Daniel have known this? I mean, this is, this is crazy, this vision that he's seeing. And then it continues on in verse 7 and gets even more bizarre and even more dark and concerning and terrorizing. It says, after this, I kept looking in the night visions. And behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong. And it had, a large, it had large iron teeth. You know, it's interesting. The first three, it says that they were like a lion, like a bear, like a leopard. This doesn't say it's like anything. This one's different. It's unique. It's powerful. It's strong. Iron leads us to believe that this is the Roman Empire, the, the, the empire that existed for the longest amount of time, 1,500 years. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. This is crazy. Look, at, look what it says after that. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one. And that's significant. We're not going to spend a lot of time here today. But we're going to come back to this next week because there's a lot to understand and unpack about this. It says, A little one came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. So there's this fourth kingdom. It's dreadful. It's terrible. It's dominating. It inspires terror. It wreaks havoc. It's what we see explained. And we see a corresponding vision of this in Revelation chapter 13, this beast that rises up from the sea. But notice the little horn. It's saying that this kingdom is going to produce one. It's going to produce this man who's going to be dominant, who's going to be arrogant, who's going to be intelligent, a dangerous combination. It's pointing us to the Antichrist. And there's a lot of ideas, there's a lot of thoughts, there's a lot of predictions about the Antichrist. And we're going we're gonna to dive into that a little bit more next week. But for today, I want us to focus on the four kingdoms and what it's telling us. And what I think we see in this fourth kingdom is we see the apex of human rebellion and evil. But I don't want us to dismiss, because I don't think Daniel just saw this vision and God, gave it, God didn't just give it to him so that he could write it down. I think he wants us to see it today so that it will make an impression on us today. So that we won't just see it as some narrative, as something that's concerning. It does invoke some kind of terror, some fear, some hopelessness, but he's pointing us to something. He's pointing us to the consistent pattern of human history. That's the second thing we see, is this consistency. And we see this consistency in history. Historical patterns have always led to empty hope. As whole nations, whole kingdoms, rulers, emperors, leaders, they're always pursuing something. And in their pursuit, there's conflict, there's control, there's chaos feels so dark and pessimistic, but I want us to understand something today. It represents us. It represents humanity. Because at the core of every single one of us, this is our potential, and it's the patterns of all of history. It's okay to hope for the best, but I think it's important to think about where is your hope. I think that's what we begin to see in this. But I want us to just pause for a second because I think it's easy for us to think that this was some ancient thing. But I think we see this pattern continue through all of history. In 1895 and 96, the Turkish soldiers killed more than 100,000 Armenian citizens. 100,000. And then in 1915, they decided that the Armenians were helping the Russians to invade. And so they decided that April 24th of 1915 would be Armenian Liquidation Day. And 600,000 Armenians were killed. Many of them were killed as their heads were put in vices. 
I mean, this is dark. This is terrifying. In 1919, Koreans protested Japanese tyranny. And they were assaulted. They were beaten. They were flogged. Their toenails were ripped from their foot one by one. In World War II, it's called Black Friday. The Japanese went into Alexandria Hospital in Singapore and bayoneted every patient, doctor, and nurse. And then they took the Chinese out to the beaches and tied them by their hands and massacred them on the waterfront. You see, this isn't something that's just ancient centuries ago. These times of things have happened in the last hundred years. We read stories about Joseph Stalin, about Hitler and his uh, desire to exterminate the Jews from the planet. Even today, human trafficking in our world is rampant. There's 25 million people across the globe who are being restricted from their right to freedom. And did you know that the United States is one of the worst places for human trafficking? 30% of all global human trafficking victims are children. This is dark. And just a little side note, I'm super thankful that we as community of faith, you heard a story just a little while ago, are pushing back the darkness of that human trafficking. You are making a difference in the lives of people, but it's a real thing in our world. My point in saying all this isn't just to leave us in a dark place, but it's to show us that earthly kingdoms are incredibly beastly and destructive. But I want you to notice something that happens here because I don't want you to just leave here discouraged. There's this shift that happens in verse 9. I mean, you're reading about all this darkness and all this destruction and all of this terror, and then there's this abrupt shift between verses 8 and 9. We cut from the scene of terror and we see the scene of a throne and of judgment. You see this point to the ancient of days, to, to God himself, and then you see this point to the Son of Man, which is Jesus, and sandwiched between these two images of greatness is this little kind of reflection on the little horn, the Antichrist, and I think it's in this moment that the scripture wants to thrill the hope in your life to see something eternal, something that you can place your hope in that can't be shaken. Look what it says. It says, I kept looking until thrones were set up in the ancient of days. I mean, highlight that, circle that, underline that, write that down. It's pointing to your heavenly father. That's who Daniel's describing. The ancient of days took his seat. Why does that matter? Because everything we read before was a lot of chaos, a lot of destruction, a lot of activity to continue to advance and to control. The ancient of days, it's this image of peace, calm, control, without being anxious. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. There's this idea of splendor and wisdom, all-knowing from the beginning of time to the end of time. He exists outside of time. I think sometimes we can read this, and our imagery is different. We live in a Western culture that's kind of youth-crazed, and when we think of white hair or older age, we think, well, they're kind of past their prime, but don't miss that in this passage. It's pointing to strength, to wisdom, to the all-powerful his throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were, were a burning fire. Anytime you see fire in Scripture, it's pointing to the presence of Yahweh, to the presence of God. You see this in this passage. In verse 10, it says this, A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. 
Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads, myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were opened. There's just almost this idea, thousands of thousands of these, these hosts around him, giving glory to the ancient of days. It's this infinite picture of his greatness. But then it shifts in verse 11. It goes back to something we mentioned a minute ago. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words with the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. It's like there's this beast and it's insane and it's coming out of the, the, the sea and then just quickly, just like that, the beast was slain. Game over. Ball game. Keeps, keeps going. It says this, as for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. This is crazy. You, the ancient of the days, and then all of a sudden, there's this reference to the little horn, but he's extinguished in no time. Contrasting the power of the ancient of days versus the little horn, it's, it's pointing us to hope. It continues on. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. We're going to come back to that in just a second. And it came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Verse 14 says, And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. The, the word originally used when this was written is not the word where you just serve or to volunteer your time. It's the word that you're attending to or serving something that is a deity, that's superhuman. It's this idea of worship. They're worshiping him. It's pointing us to the arrival, the second arrival of Jesus Christ. That's what this is pointing us to. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. The Son of Man, he has a kingdom. He arrives as a man, as a human, not as a beast. It's like he's from a different world. He's set apart from these other powerful creatures. You know what's interesting is in the New Testament, when Jesus was illegally placed under oath, and was demanded to declare that he was the Messiah. His response is interesting. You can go back and read this in Mark 14, verse 61. It says, again, the high priest was questioning him, the high priest being Caiaphas, and saying to, to him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. Where does that come from? Daniel. You see, there's credibility here. Jesus, his dominion, his glory, his strength is ex going to exist forever, and he's going to return one day. You see, I believe the function of this passage that sets the stage for the rest of the book of Daniel is designed to bring hope for the discouraged, for the hopeless people of God. It's insisting that we focus on the ancient of the days and the son of man, not the destruction and the terror that maybe we find ourselves in. This is the last thing confidence. This is where we find our confidence. It's our eternal hope is never found in earthly places. We have confidence here. Think about it this way. Let's just say hypothetically, okay, I'm not making any accusations, just hypothetically. Let's say that there's a major league baseball team one day that decides to come up with this scheme to tip their hitters off with the pitch that's coming to the plate. Let's just say that might happen. I don't, know if it, I don't know if it ever would, but let's just say it might happen. It might involve some trash cans, some, some microphones. I, I don't know. And if you're getting a little salty about that, listen, I'm just messing with you. But just think about this for a second. 
You know what's interesting about that? Let's say that they do that. There's a different confidence when you know what pitch is coming, but you still have to play the game. And I think that's what this hope is for us. As we understand the ancient of days, your heavenly father sends his son Jesus to restore and to redeem us. And he goes to the cross, he gives his life, he comes back to life, and he ascends into heaven. But there's going to be a day where he is going to come back, and we know that to be true based on what we see in the book of Daniel and see through God's prophecy. We know what is coming, but we still find ourselves in the battle sometimes, still find ourselves trying to play the game. And it's easy to get discouraged, but we have hope. So let me land with just kind of this idea. When you think about hope for you, you think about what hope is to you. Maybe there are some things that you have hope in. I have hope for my future. I have hope for my kids. I have hope for the job that I want. I have hope for these things. Or maybe, maybe you don't have hope, but maybe you had hope. Past tense, you had hope for your job. You had hope for your marriage. You had hope for your future. You, you hoped that things would be better than they are. You hoped that things were going to be a little bit easier. You hoped that things weren't going to be exactly the way that they are. But history tells us something different about life. There are times in life where we have hope and confidence and it, it lifts us up. And then something can happen that deflates us. Let me illustrate it this way. I think of it like a balloon. You know, balloons are an interesting thing. And when we're little kids, they're really exciting. I mean, think about your, your toddlers or, or someone that's really young. The first time they get a balloon with helium in it, I mean, they're just like, and then they move and it follows them and they're like, is this a spaceship? Like, what's going on? This is crazy. What is this? But when you give a, a four or three-year-old a, a balloon, I mean, they, they grab it and they hang on to it. And they're like, oh, this is, this is crazy. I know back in the day, we used to give our preschoolers balloons when they would leave on a, on a weekend service. And um, they were always so excited and they were so captivated and compelled by the balloon and how it was staying up in the air. And it was always funny, those moments where you'd be in the lobby and parents would be sprinting back to the front doors because their kid learned for the very first time that if they let go or they let the string slip through their fingers, it's gone forever up into the heavens. It was so final and, and brutal, this experience of losing the balloon. So they walk in and you're like, we got you covered. We got another balloon for you. But you know, the kid takes it home, they get it in the car and they're holding on to it tight and you know, they're still just kind of in awe of it. And then they start doing that thing in the back of the car that drives you crazy with that sound. It just like, you're like, stop it. Did you make that sound one more time? I tell you what. And then they finally get home and everybody's okay and it's safe. I'm inside, under the ceiling. It can't get away. Just got to keep it away from the hot lights, but everything, everything's going to be okay. And then you go to sleep. So you put your balloon down and you sleep good because you're a kid and there's nothing to worry about when you're that age. And you wake up the next morning and you look for that balloon, but it's not floating anymore. And you're like... What happened? Why so downcast? Oh, my balloon. It's deflated. I mean, it's just like, well, this is pathetic. Here's why I show you that today. I think that this might be a picture of the way that we see hope in our lives. You see, we have hope for things. We had hope for things, but we've lost it or we lose it. 
We had hope in that job, had hope in that marriage, had hope for our kids. We had hope that life was gonna look a specific way, a certain way. We had hope in leadership. We had hope in government. We had hope in our nation and systems around us. Sometimes it doesn't work out like we hoped it would. You think to yourself, man, I tried and I tried and I tried. It's just not, it's just not working anymore. I mean, have you ever had one of those moments where you had hope and in a, in a moment, everything changed? Isn't it crazy how quick one phone call can completely evaporate any hope you have in your life? I remember in January of 2018, I was walking through the parking lot between the buildings here at Community Faith and Brandy called me, my wife. And she said, the doctor won't give me any news over the phone. He wants us to come in in the morning. That's kind of a hopeless moment. Everything changes in that moment because you know that that's not gonna be good news. The job changes. Ultimately, you find yourself in a place where it's never gonna go back to the way that it was. Everything moving forward is going to look different. Hopes, dreams, the future. Deflated. Think to ourselves, I don't know what to do. That hurts. It hurts to go from this to that. But here's what I think we can learn from that. And I don't want you to miss this. All earthly hopes are fragile. All earthly hopes will leave you feeling empty. Earthly kingdoms, earthly leaders, earthly systems, earthly governments, they leave us empty because eternal hope is never found in earthly places. There's not a relationship that can't be taken. There's not a business that can't cave. There's not a situation that can't change in a moment. So we're faced with a difficult decision. Where will we put our hope when our world is falling apart? We have a couple of ways we can respond. Sometimes we respond by insulating ourselves from everything. If I just insulate myself from everything and just kind of keep it all together, then I'll be fine. But that's not really living. Or maybe we just stick our head in the sand and dismiss the reality and try to live with this false optimism that everything's going to be okay. I hope it's going to be okay. But I think what the book of Daniel, and specifically this passage, is asking and calling us out to do is to fix our eyes on Jesus. That Jesus would be our hope. Nothing earthly. Our eternal hope is found in Jesus. Notice that Daniel doesn't say, hey, listen, the market's going to get better. Your marriage is going to get better. Your kids are going to be okay. The job's going to turn around. Doesn't say that your political party is going to be able to bring the change that's needed to turn things around. It doesn't say to have more hope and uh, confidence in the leadership that you surround yourself. It doesn't, it doesn't say any of that. And listen, today, I'm not saying that you can't hope for those things. But don't put your hope there. It's okay to hope for your kids, your marriage, your job. But put your hope in Jesus. Because a hope in Christ is a strong hope. And I can live stronger today when my hope is in Jesus. My hope is in Jesus. Because one day... He's going to come back, and he's going to make everything new. He's going to restore what's been broken. And every knee is going to bow to Jesus. Every knee of sickness, every knee of hatred, every knee of relationship dysfunction, 
every knee of division, every knee of racism, every knee of everything that brings pain and chaos and dysfunction in our lives will one day bow their knees to Jesus. My hope is in that. And that can't be shaken. So I just want you to consider, do you have that hope? Because if you do, here's what I know is true for you, is that hope may not always keep you from pain, but it'll keep you from panic. You don't have to hit the panic button in life every time something goes wrong, because your hope is not in something that's earthly. Your hope is in Jesus. Will you pray with me? With your eyes closed, I just want you to consider that question. Where is your hope? Where's your hope? Is your hope in something earthly? That if tomorrow it was broken or it didn't go the way that you thought it was gonna go, you would find yourself hopeless? You see my fear, I've been praying for this weekend, I've been praying for just even this moment that God would use what we've heard and experienced today to just make us aware of where we've put our hope, our ultimate security. And I just wanna invite you, if that's you today and you've never put your hope in Jesus, you've never trusted Jesus, the one who gave his life for you, maybe right now is that moment where you say, I've tried to hope in everything else only to find myself discouraged and frustrated and hurt. Maybe today is the day that you cross that line of faith and say, Jesus, I trust you. You are my hope. Show me how to live. Right now in this moment, just tell him that. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. The band is out, and I want them to sing this brief chorus. And I'm not asking you to do anything in this moment. Just sit and reflect on these words. Very simple. Have my heart. And then ask yourself, does he have your heart? Because if he has your heart, he has your everything. And he is your hope. Is that true for you today? Just listen. I'm gonna ask that you don't leave early. There'll be time for all that you need to do today in just a little bit. But would you just listen and reflect? And then we're gonna take communion together. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your truth. We thank you that we can sing that song with confidence, knowing that when we say that, when we declare that, that you made it possible through Jesus, your son, the son of man, that we could have hope in you. You are for us. You are for us personally. God, would we leave here and live in that hope this week? Would we be people of hope this week? We trust you in Jesus' name.